0: Hello, welcome to Whole Life Rising, a new podcast from inside the Whole Life Movement. Each episode, we will welcome a guest, discuss issues, and share stories from the front lines of whole life efforts to safeguard human life and dignity at all stages of life. I'm Robert Christian, the editor of the Whole Life Publication Millennial, and I'm joined by my co-host, Kristen Day, the Executive Director of Democrats for Life of America.
1: Oh, thank you, Robert. I am so happy to be here with you again.
0: Great to see ya. Let's get things started with our segment in the news. One of the big stories this month is the recent passage of the COVID relief package. What are your thoughts on this piece of legislation?
1: There were a lot of really good things in the COVID relief package that will help so many Americans who have been struggling through this just this past year of, of being out of work, not having enough money, and... Uh, just being shut down and closed off. So I think there are a lot of good things in the bill. Uh, in fact, one of my uh, our uh, volunteers got their check and was able to replace their laptop that wasn't working. So I think and and giving him the ability to work. So it's just very exciting to see all the support that's going to the people in need. However, uh, that being said, I have huge concerns uh, about the relief package and the fact that it did not contain the Hyde amendment. This is long-standing bipartisan policy that prohibits taxpayer funding of abortion. And it's hugely disturbing that uh, they decided, the, the, our Democratic leadership decided to go against this 40-year policy that um, that is has bipartisan cooperation to prevent taxpayer funding of abortion. So I'm hopeful going forward that this does not set any precedent, because it's a very dangerous precedent. The more funding we provide for abortion, the more babies are killed.
0: Yeah, I, I mean, I share your disappointment there with the absence of Hyde language. And uh, I also think it would have been nice if we could have had some minimum wage increase if that, that had been viable. Um, but there is a lot to like about the legislation, as you said. You know, First of all, the, the direct cash assistance, the stimulus payments. So many people are in need during this pandemic, um, along with the assistance to those that have lost their jobs, right? Because a lot of Americans are out of work. Plus the assistance to state and local governments and schools, so we can get those schools open up safely, teachers vaccinated, and school you know kids in the building. And um, the expansion of the child tax credit and sending this out monthly uh, is good policy and good politics, in my opinion. You know, if we value children, we need to provide assistance to those raising children. So many young families are struggling with skyrocketing health care and childcare costs. Um, and that was before COVID. So I think this could make a huge difference, and I'd love to see them make it permanent too.
1: Yep, absolutely. I think that's going to be a discussion when people uh, receive these payments and see the effect. Uh, we might uh, have a better discussion going forward on how we can help families in need. Uh, I'd like to point out too, that we had some, some good support for the Hyde Amendment in the Senate, Senator Casey from Pennsylvania, Senator Manchin from West Virginia, and my own senator, Senator Tim Kaine, from Virginia, supported the Hyde Amendment in the Senate. So I think that is good news going forward, because any future attempt to provide uh, ta- to eliminate the Hyde Amendment will need 60 votes. So we are optimistic that we can protect the Hyde Amendment going forward.
0: Yeah, that was encouraging, and I think a lot of a lot of Whole Life supporters were encouraged to see those votes. Um, On this bill, was it that they needed 60 votes to include the Hyde Amendment?
1: Yes. So they needed uh, they did have 52 votes, uh, which is a majority. But unfortunately, because of the way the rules are of the Senate on this particular vote, it didn't pass the muster of the parliamentarian. So they needed 60 votes to bring the Hyde Amendment back into the protections of the code of the COVID relief bill. It, unfortunately, it wasn't a simple majority as some of the other provisions that just needed 51.
0: Great. You know, that might be confusing to some people that don't know some of the arcane yeah. rules of the Senate there.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is very confusing the the Senate, the way the Senate works. And it's uh, it's something that we are hopeful that in the next couple of weeks, we're going to do a uh, Hyde symposium to teach people what Hyde means, what we need to protect it, and a little bit about how the Senate works and, and the votes that are needed there to protect it.
0: Great, sounds good. Now let's go ahead and move on to our question of the month. Our question this month is, should we care what men think about abortion? Kristen, I'll go ahead and defer to you on this one and mute myself, as you might be a little more persuasive for those on the fence.
1: Yeah, I find it so interesting because, as you know, I've been doing and I've been involved in the pro-life movement for a long time, and have been involved in a lot of debates. And one of the interesting things that I note is that people say that men's voices don't matter when it's convenient. So a lot of the, you know, when you're when you're debating this issue, a lot of the, uh, the, the pro-choice debaters will say that, well, this is a woman's issue, so men don't matter. But then when a pro-choice man comes out and says, yes, this matters, then their voice does matter. So there's a little bit of hypocrisy here. And I tell you one thing, uh, in the pro-life movement, there are so many women voices out there that are highly discounted when it comes to this issue uh, because they say abortion is a woman's issue and it should be legal. And that's just really not the majority opinion, but we do need to work in partnership with, with pro-life men And they're a very important part of this constituency to protect life. Um, You know, we hear. uh, I spoke with a gentleman a couple of months ago, and he shared his abortion story with me, about how he can he convinced his girlfriend, who now has been his wife for forty years, to have an abortion before they were married, and he says it haunts his soul. So abortion affects men just as much as it affects women, and they should have a voice in this movement and how we uh, protect life.
0: Obviously, I agree, which is why I'm willing to talk (laughs) about these issues, you know, on a podcast like this. And I do view, view the issue through the prism of universal human rights, which I think we're all called on to protect and to defend. And I mean, it is connected to the equality and flourishing of women, which is why we need a lot of female voices in this conversation. But as someone who identifies as a feminist, I think we can do better than abortion. I think women deserve better and that real equality simply deserves a better approach. And hopefully we can elevate some of those voices here um, because there, as you were indicating, there are tens of millions of pro-life women out there. And many of them are feminists who want equality, who want women, families, children to all flourish.
1: Yep. I know when you look at Students for Life, Susan B. Anthony List, Rehumanize International, feminist uh feminist new wave feminist uh feminist choosing life new york they're all run by women
0: and a lot of women that believe in feminism too
1: yes and we all work with men in our movement who we appreciate and partner, or at with least tolerate. And, uh, you know, it... <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, I I love men. I have a husband and two boys, <laughs> so the, and my father and my brothers, <laughs> my uncles. Yes, I love them all. So yeah, they I value their opinions and their views and yours too, Robert. <laughs>
0: Our guest this week is Michael Sean Winters. MSW is an award-winning columnist at the National Catholic Reporter, where he often writes about the intersection of faith and politics. He's also the author of Left at the Altar, How Democrats Lost the Catholics and How Catholics Can Save the Democrats, which he wrote around a dozen years ago, but is still relevant in 2021. Michael Sean, thanks so much for joining us today. Good to be with you.
1: Yes, thank you so much, Michael. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. So my first question is about the results of the 2020 election. And you know, what are your big takeaways and what do you think this means for 2022? What do you see coming?
2: I think, you know, the biggest takeaway is everything that we thought we knew was wrong. We've always kind of been campaigning on the left and thought, you know, like higher turnout was a good thing. And this was hugely higher turnout. I mean, it was up 15%. That's enormous. And it was a result of polarization. Like it was because people want to be at each other's throats that that so many people were, were motivated to, to turn out. Um Latino turnout was up thirty-one percent. So I want to come back to that as a separate topic. Um but I think the 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 important thing, this election, the real reason you can't overthink it is COVID became the the issue and And I, I, I watched a uh, a webinar from the University of Texas, the LBJ School, and one a pollster Matt Barreto, who, do, who does polling in the Latino community and 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 did polling for for the Biden campaign in Arizona, I believe. Uh, he made an interesting point. He said, you know, the Democrats had had a good message, and they had tested it and it got you know, you know people believe in the science, and people wanted to take this seriously. But Trump, his genius was to just keep screaming we got to get the economy open. We've got to get the economy open. And so for a lot of working class and small business people for whom, like, getting their shop back open and being able to get mom and dad back to work and all was not, like, like some, some privileged opportunity. Like, they had to do this. Over time, they associated Trump with getting the economy open. He didn't really have a plan for it. He didn't have any approach that, that was going to work. But if if you just hear it again and again and again, and the Democrats have a much more complicated message, it, just that idea becomes associated with him. I thought that was a really smart insight. I, I think traditional methods of campaigning have to be reexamined. I think we've all learned now that polling has more to do with astrology than astronomy. I did a series, I don't know if you saw it at the National Catholic Reporter, about uh, the Latino vote and one of the things that Joshua Blank at the University of Texas told me was he said, you know, that campaigns are so accustomed to having bad work product when it comes to polling, they don't even recognize it anymore. And that so many of the people who work on campaigns are, are so biased in some of their, their their approaches to issues, they can't even see the assumptions that are behind the questions they're asking and the answers that they're getting. I thought that was a really smart observation. And, and you realize why on, on, on the issue that your organization you know, works on, like how it, it has a hard time breaking through, in part, because you have to, you have to break through this, the, the circle of people who work on campaigns who, who you know, bring their biases and don't want to hear an alternative framing of an issue. Uh, until the voters force them to, and I'll finish my answer to your question with this. The thing no one saw coming was how the Latino, that Trump would improve his numbers with Latino voters nationwide. Yes, we all, there were some articles about what was going on in Florida and the Cubans and the misinformation campaign and socialism, 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 and, and which, you know, the, the my, Miami, it's not just the Cubans in Miami. You have a lot of upper-middle-class Venezuelans and Colombians and very affluent Latin Americans down there who really do have good reasons to hate socialism. You know, Joe Biden, amongst, you know, was not a recognizable socialist, but, but you can see how that worked. You know, he got two, over 200,000 more votes in Florida than, than last time from the Latino community. That's just shocking, 200,000. He shrunk his margin in Miami-Dade that from what Hillary it turns out Hillary overperformed among Latinos nationwide but it wasn't just Miami-dade even though in Arizona for instance the Latino vote grew so much and spoke for for Biden decisively and that probably pushed it was a Latino vote that put it pushed him across the, mar, uh, the the finish line nonetheless he had a net loss among Latinos compared to Hillary in, in Arizona so, the only other thing I will, will warn people about that, that I didn't know when I started researching these pieces is been, there's been a lot of talk about the Rio Grande Valley, which is uh, McAllen and, and Brownsville and, and uh, Laredo uh, up to El Paso, which is a heavily Catholic area. I think uh, the, in, in the diocese of Brownsville, the population is 95% Catholic, and it's a very homogenous uh, Latino population. It's They're all Mexican-American, and, but some have been there uh since since the border crossed them right you know others have come more recently and crossed the border but um i was cautioned not to overinterpret that because you have some really small margins i mean small th- some of those counties are very small so people were citing star county where you know trump improved his margin by like 40% i think he got 7500 votes it was just you know it's a really tiny mm-hmm. county uh, and that this is also a population that uh, does not turn out in overwhelming numbers. Mm-hmm. And he said, so a small population that does not turn out in numbers, you know, uh, that correspond to their share of the electorate. This is a recipe for a huge swing in, in an election. And don't o- overinterpret that. that. The real story of the Latino vote in Texas is the suburbs. And, and again, I didn't know this about Texas. You look at the map, you assume it's largely a rural state. Eighty uh, percent of Texans live in metropolitan areas, and a majority of Texans have lived in metropolitan areas since the 1950s. That was a real eye opener. Um, that the story in, in, is not just flipping voters in the in the suburbs; it's the changing composition and growth in the suburban vote in in, in Texas. That so, and that their suburbs are not kind of like our eastern suburbs. The, the houses are pretty close together. They just happen to be a little bit further out um, than, than the downtown, downtown cores. So at the end of the day, this was a very, very close election. I think 54,000 votes in some key precincts, and Donald Trump would have been reelected, which is so frightening. On the other hand, the margin of, in the popular vote was enormous, and that was a, a, a good sign. And I think uh, no matter how you slice it, this was a repudiation of, of Trump, which has been, been you know, kind of seconded and, and, and reaffirmed by everything Trump did since. I think th- there is obviously a base of the Republican Party that has become a cult and, and you know, is devoted to this man, come what may. But I, I, I think there's an equal number of Republicans. They obviously can't say this publicly, but they are they are delighted to view him in a, ba- in a rearview mirror.
1: Do do want to ask you about 2022. And I think it's very fascinating about the Hispanic vote, who also tends to be more pro-life,
2: yeah, surprise, surprise, abuelas—they're not
1: woke. <laughs> <laughs> twenty, yeah, in twenty sixteen, you know, Hillary Clinton made the abort- Democratic Party more extreme on abortion, and a lot of pro life Democrats didn't come out to vote. In twenty twenty, a lot of pro life Democrats did vote for Joe Biden, and there was even a group pro life evangelicals for Biden to say that you know we should vote for him, even though he's terrible on the issue of abortion. So you know, what do you think uh, in in twenty twenty two? Do you think the abortion issue is going to play a larger role and especially if this continued effort to uh, advocate for taxpayer funding of abortion and try to eliminate Hyde and when you look at the Hispanic vote if, if that becomes a more important focal issue because there won't be a anti you know there won't be a don't vote for Trump vote it's going to have to people are going to have to vote you know run on their party and and run on what the party's doing
2: I, a couple things. God willing, the pandemic will have been overcome. I think there's an enormous amount of pent up demand in this economy, nowhere more than, than in the parts of the economy that have been hardest hit, like the tourism and restaurant industry. I think people are chomping at the bit to get on a plane and go somewhere. Uh, so I think the economy is going to come roaring back. I think you're going to see, see just a, a real sense of deliverance if, if we as a nation have overcome this. Um, so you would think that would provide a lot of wind at the democrats back and and certainly it should the problem with that analysis is especially on the economic front when the economy is bad it's the only issue when the economy is good other issues come to the surface and we're not it's not real clear what those other issues are going to be it will not be Hyde. i don't think Hyde is going to make a difference for for voters one way or the other i think a supreme court decision Going one way or the other, and the backlash that could provoke could decisively affect the election. It's too soon to know whether they will have a, a you know a, a case next term that that could could prove decisive on that. I suspect to the you know I think Biden so far has done a pretty good job of keeping the focus on the economy. Um and and if you stay away from Twitter and you stay away from the more kind of highbrow news, you know, or or, or lefty lefty channels. If you just like watch like the nightly news, it's all about like COVID relief and economics. And and the American Rescue Plan is a great piece of legislation. I mean, I wish it had had the high language, obviously, that's a huge disappointment. But, you know, this is this is a repudiation of of Reaganism and Thatcherism. This goes this is saying, no, 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 we're not going to do the uh, top-down, uh, trickle-down economics anymore. And I think uh, more d- Democrats really campaigned on this. And And I, r- I wrote about this, that after the Affordable Care Act, I, I talked to a friend in, in the Obama administration and said, well, don't forget the sales job starts now, the day, and, and, and they didn't do it. They didn't get out and sell it. And in fact, in 2010, their pollsters were telling them, well, you know, this doesn't poll well, so talk about something else. So the only people talking about it were the Republicans. And well, guess what? Its numbers went down, you know, because, the, you know, you, you have an ad campaign saying it's a horrible uh, piece of legislation and nothing from the other side. So I think the Bi- Biden clearly learned that lesson. And they are out there selling the, the uh, American Rescue Plan. I think he's got to be very careful on how he handles the border situation. Um, that could become a new culture war Point. I've been watching Fox News this week, and it's all about the crisis at the border, and that this is Biden's doing, which is, of course, nonsense. This is about helping people who have been in desperate straits in refugee camps due to the remain in Mexico policy who are finally being let back in and, and and not even yet really at the numbers that we had before Trump, right? I mean, it's just, we're getting back, we're learning how to ride a bicycle again in terms of processing immigration and and uh, asylum claims. But, you know, it only takes one photograph of a kid in a cage and all hell is going to break loose. And so he's got to be very careful about that. I, I hope he will turn to to the Catholic Church for help on this issue. I mean, if, if I were advising Joe Biden, I would say... Um, Time for a meeting with Sister Norma Pimentel and uh, Sister uh, uh, Donna Markham from Catholic Charities. And this is an issue on which Archbishop Jose Gomez is wonderful, and and his his, uh, culture warrior staff knows not to even try to push him on this. So this would be a really good thing for the Biden administration to reach out to the Catholic Church, which in turn, combined with the results of 2020, where it was kind of centrist white voters who shifted toward Biden, that flipped the, the states he needed to win, uh, this, this, I think, would give him a, a continued ability to withstand mu- some of the more extreme pro-abortion and pro-LGBT advocates within the Democratic Party. I think it would give, allow him to say, we're going to focus on this, this, this is the winning message. But, but it's very, very hard. It, you know the, 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 the pro-choice groups have gobs of money, the LGBT rights groups have gobs of money. Uh, neither have any, you know, kind of respect for uh, for for certain traditions and legal traditions and constitutional traditions of, of our country. Um, and and are, you know, all too happy to move into brave new world territory. And and it's hard to resist that. It's it's really really important that that we get to young people because that you know people form their political loyalties in their twenties and. And I think the the Latino vote is it's just it's it's a lot of it is evangelical, a lot of it is 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 Catholic. Some of the younger people are, are are nuns, just as you find in the white community. But it is still shaped by a Catholic culture that they've come from, and that sense of identity, you know, hangs on into the second, third, fourth generation in in a lot of communities, not in others. I mean, it depends on the community that they move into. Um, and, and in a Catholic culture, there's a respect for life there that you, you just don't have in America's kind of post-World War II technocratic uh, consumerist culture. And I, I'm, I'm hoping that, that the Democratic Party as a party will come together and say, and, you know, not in our lifetime is the Democratic Party going to be pro-life as a whole. But at least they would understand, look, we have to moderate our our, our message on this and be a big, more of a big tent party. And if we do that, we can really, we can keep the, the Latino, our margins with Latinos at the 70-30 margin. If not, you know, I think it will be 60-40 sooner rather than later and 50-50 and, and, and eventually flip the Latinos have you know there's a there's a lot of points at which the kind of woke political culture is the antithesis of what you need to Mm -hmm. attract latinos obviously the kind of beat up on america the certain tone of 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 something like the the 1619 project doesn't really ring true in the years of people who left their country to come here they they think america's great now I, i and there's a balancing act because there is a reckoning on race that America is called to undertake, but if it's angry and if it's you know sweeping in its judgments and and all that, I think you're going to see Latinos increasingly turn to the Republican Party. Um, so there's a lot to unpack there, and and the life issues are a key key part of it. Um, it, it, 2022, how this plays out in a midterm. You never know. Normally, I think you would you would imagine uh, midterms are going to be good for the Republicans. On the other hand, we know at least 10 members of, of Congress and seven senators are either going to not run again or be primaried by a Donald, Donald Trump candidate because they voted to impeach him. Uh, so there is a core division within the Republican Party that, that is a huge opening for the Democrats. I, I uh, Robert, you may know off the top of your head, I think the Republicans also are defending more Senate seats this time than the Democrats by by, by quite a lot, right?
1: They are. Yeah, that's, yep, that's correct.
2: So that's my sense of 2022. Way too soon to know. But there are signs for hope for the Democrats that you would not normally have going into a midterm, mostly because of COVID and because of the fights within the Republican Party, and because Joe Biden ran a, camp- a successful winning campaign by focusing on economic issues and not the culture war issues. And that's good for Democrats.
0: Mm -hmm. So you you talked a little bit about Catholics there. And in the past, you've talked about a group of voters you call Pope Francis voters. Uh, Can you describe that group of voters, how big that group is, and why Democrats or maybe even Republicans should maybe pay a little bit more attention to them?
2: So this grew out of, um, of, of, of some research I read done by Lee Drutman, who's at the New America Foundation. And he looked at, at, at a lot of polls in the 2016 um, election. And again, I think we all now know we have to be a little careful with polling. But uh, he was looking not so much in terms of this demographic or that, but just like people's attitudes on issues. And broadly, try to classify them as, are they liberal on both economic and social issues or conservative on both economic and social issues? Because people always say, oh, are you a centrist or are you a radical? And it's like, well, on what? Okay, mm-hmm. and he said, let's, let's delve into this and what he found was you know basically a quarter of the electorate is liberal on both and that's the base of the democratic party a little less than a quarter um a little more than a quarter is conservative on both and that's the base of the republican party and then the the group that is liberal on uh social issues so pro-choice very aggressively uh, pro-LGBT rights, even at the expense of, of, of turning over Riffra and things like that. But conservative fiscally and economically, uh, what we could call like the Mike Bloomberg uh, the, the uh, voters, um, that was 3.8% of the electorate. And the quartile opposite who are more socially conservative, not big fans of late-term abortion, pretty, you know, like in favor of of gay rights, but have serious questions about some of the transgender, gender ideology stuff and all that, Um, but are very progressive on economic issues, support the wealth tax and all this. That quartile was 28.7%. Now, 28 versus three, I've never been good at math, but it seems to me whichever party successfully wins the group that is economically liberal and socially conservative dominates elections, and that's not a bad description of Pope Francis. is a little bit more conservative on social issues, and like more liberal on economic issues than Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So, so this is that's if if you see them as Pope Francis voters and start thinking of them holistically, like how how, do, how does somebody come to this i don't think it's hard to, to find which is that that opposite quartile the michael bloomberg position they're libertarians mm-hmm. that's exactly what they are you know they, they they don't believe that you argue from from commitments to the common good or a sense of solidarity um you let people do what they want and that's why we are going to make sure they keep more of their tax dollars and we're going to let them do what they want you know there's no Um, There's no restrictions on 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 personal private behavior. The Holy Father is not coming from a a position of like you gotta. I mean, he's not old fashioned. You know, I say this isn't just a throwback. He's not. He he. you never will find a single sentence of of Pope Francis's where you get a nostalgia for the 1950s, right? I mean, this he's not that. What he is, is always, always, always starting from a standpoint of solidarity. What does it mean to exercise solidarity in this moment? So on the issue of something like abortion, obviously, there are two persons to be cared for here. We have to do a better job taking care of the woman, and we've got to protect the child. On issues like gay rights, there is there is a, a, a gay person who has to be respected and loved and encouraged and not discriminated against. On the other hand, that is not exactly, like... Gay marriage is not sacramental marriage, and 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 we're not afraid to recognize that difference. And on the the uh, the issues of of the environment, again, it's not this kind of abstract science. It's a deep commitment to each other, and 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 an awareness that environmental degradation harms the poor first, and 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 always, right? I mean, they're always the ones who get harmed by by uh, abuse. So. I I think the more the language of solidarity, which, again, we were talking earlier about Latinos coming from a Catholic culture in which that sense of solidarity is very manifest. And if you doubt it, talk to a conservative Latino about gay issues in the abstract and then ask a question about their gay son or cousin. Mm -hmm. And it's like. Well, you know, we're not so sure about these gay issues and you're like, "Yeah, but what about Julio?" And they're like, "Well, he's my cousin. I love him." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it is like, you know, so it's it this is built into the culture of Latinos that they have a sense of solidarity that they bring with them. And and I think that there's a, again, there's a real opportunity for the Democrats that I'm afraid um they they won't take because the the people who tend to, you know, drive Democratic Party politics, even sadly some of the Latinos who drive it, you know have gone to harvard and they've gone to yale and 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 they've drunk deeply at at some uh well springs and come from a different place so so we'll see
0: plus it that's three percent in that one quadrant but if you were just doing billionaires the percent would be a lot higher and
2: uh <laughs> yeah. with our which elect- should tip you off <laughs> right you know if you want to know what God thinks of money, just look at the people to whom on whom he has bestowed it, right? You know? <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: And unfortunately, mon- money matters a great deal in our uh, political system right now. Yes. Um, yeah. When we look at...
2: Uh- Although, well, let's stop there for a sec. That's another thing that we learned in the 2020 cycle. How many articles, I've written them, criticizing Citizens United. And you know what? Corporate money is actually not what drives campaigns anymore. I mean, it was you know there were all these corporations that after January 6th said we will not, if you if you voted to over, you know if you're one of those Republicans who voted to overturn not re- you know receive the Arizona or Pennsylvania electoral college votes we're not going to back you and they lost like five percent of their funding which didn't stop any of them but Marjorie Taylor Greene the QAnon Republican congresswoman like her fundraising went through the roof the the, the Democratic candidates had more well funded primary campaigns than ever before and none of them were taken in well, I think Buttigieg was taken pack money but you know it it turns out like that was had that concern I mean I would st- still think Citizens United was a bad case and all that but the and and I think there's still a concern with dark money but it has more to do with lobbying on K Street and 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 other ways of of spending money but it's not about campaign finance I mean that's not the problem
1: I don't know. What if you, I mean, take a look at Dan Lipinski's primary, where the abortion lobby created these additional packs where they used yep. that, those additional packs that they created and ran ads against them. So I think the money mattered there.
0: I mean, the ideological purity that exists now, most of the people with money have achieved their goals. They've been able to get rid of people that don't conform. Yep.
2: It's, it's very hard, and I, I'll go back to the transgender issue I mentioned before. I talked to a lot of professors um, in, in my line of work. And Ross Douthat made, mentioned this a couple of weeks ago in a column. He said, you know, on the, at the time of the gay marriage debate, all of his liberal friends were just 100% behind gay marriage. But that's not the case on the transgender issue, but they're all afraid to talk about it. And I think this is where organizations like yours are so important. I think people do I think people rightly have reservations about some of the, the, the non-binary gender ideology stuff. And and I certainly share those concerns. But I don't want to be associated with Laura Ingram either. Right. You know, cuz she's hateful. And and there are people who are, you know, genuinely dealing with transgender for whom it's not an ideology for it's for, for for whom it's a reality and nothing but compassion for those people right I mean and it's not a new thing I mean in the in when I was in high school a very long time ago we won't <laughs> say how long um, I can you know in rural Connecticut we had um, someone who was not just androgynous in our high school but he, he was actually a hermaphrodite right I mean he he, he had to have surgery and uh, and and he announced on the day he graduated high school he was Paul was going to be Paula And he was going to go have the surgery and and had made the choice that he wanted to go through life as as a woman, not through life as a man. And, you know, nothing but sympathy for that person. So you don't want to join the haters. But so and and if you if you even voice any concern on this, people say, oh, you're a hater. I'm like, no, what did I say that's hateful? Those kinds of distinctions get lost right now. And this is I'm I'm. An area of American life that I'm very concerned about is our, 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 is the academy, our, our universities and our colleges. You know, we give, we give you tenure for a reason, so that you can put up with a little blowback mm-hmm. for your parents. And so while I understand, I think there's a humane reason they don't want to join this debate, I think there's also a cowardly reason, which is they don't want to put up with the nonsense and the attacks and all this kind of stuff. That's your job. Your job is to teach students, and if students are going to say, you're a racist because you did this, or you're a, anti, you're a homophobe because you did this, it may be your job to stand up to some of that and say, no, I'm not, and here's why. And what we do in this line of work as an academic is we draw distinctions. That's what I try to do as a journalist. It is undoubtedly true there are racists in America. It is also true that there are some people who are, are full-blown racists and some people who just... Kind of imbibed it in the air of the culture that we live in, you know. And there's others who I think have successfully lived their lives in such a way that it's insulting to accuse them of being racist just because we they live in a society that that is still grappling with systemic racism. Those are important distinctions to make. And there's very little in our culture right now that inc- encourages the drawing of distinctions. I think um, I'm so tired of you know in in my line of work with theologians who. You know, put on an activist T-shirt and do, you know, we must and we shall. and You know, I'm, you're a professor of theology. Since when is your job to issue manifestos? To, you know, think through complicated issues for the rest of us because you've been given the time and the distance from the rest of society to do that. Um, and I think, you know, they want to sit at the cool table and they think this is their ticket. <laughs> it's, it's very, very frustrating uh, to me. And... and- there's also wonderful professors and, and theologians I don't want to but but it's it is scary I think there is um, there's something unhealthy in the life of our colleges and universities right now and I'm not sure how you get it out um, it may be, prove to be a fad but this is also a group that it controls the means of self-replication they get to hire their successors mm-hmm. and so it is it is worse and I, I know a lot of professors who will say things to me like, I can't believe you say what you say. I would just get crucified for it. And I and thank God I work at a at a, a newspaper that um encourages disagreement and and things like that. Obviously, we expect that disagreement to be respectful. And and I try to be respectful. Every once in a while I get a little nasty. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it, I think there are some there are some pathologies in our culture and and in any culture and and you know, a bishop said something very wise to me. He said, you know, the church, which doesn't often get a hearing right now, that, that the response to the polarization and, of our society has to start by building up culture, that that culture is inherently unitive. It helps bring people together. And before we pronounce on this issue or that, we have to really look at the foundations and try to build up culture. I thought that was just a really prof- i am still wrestling with the the— what that means and what it can mean in my life and what it can mean for for others and and how we can pursue that.
1: Yes. I want to go back to what you said about the professors trying to be cool. It's like we have to make being a pro-life Dem cool. Like that has to be the coolest thing to be. (laughs) So help us in that. (laughs) It's hard.
0: I think there's like class component here too. And looking at the broader trends of recent elections, the, the Democratic Party seems to be moving away from its working class base as it adds more upscale uh, suburban voters, often white voters. Um, if that's the strategy, how smart is that? And how do some of these cultural issues play into that?
2: I'm, I'm afraid it might be a very smart strategy.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, you get more money with that demographic, you get more influence with that demographic, you get um, a, bit, a higher consistent, you know, turnout ratios and, and, and everything. And this worries me first and foremost as 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 a Catholic where you know you you can see this also I was talking to someone about Hispanic theologians and and how the first generation of Hispanic theologians after the council in this country were had very close roots to the poor you know either had been pastors of a very poor parish had grown up poor and a couple generations later that's not always the case. And that's when, you again, you get these kind of uh, upper-middle-class concerns. Um, in in the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 4, Jesus announces his ministry and says, I come to preach good news to the poor. And And I believe the agent of secularization in our society is affluence. I mean, that is how it works. Like, we don't even have the ears any longer to hear the Gospel because it's good news for the poor, and we're no longer poor. So it worries me a great deal. That said... What gives me hope is the demographic role of Latinos,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and we're very—I feel very privileged as a Catholic and a longtime union advocate—that the the d- demographic change Latinos are are bringing to the nation are happening and have been happening already. First in the labor movement and the Catholic Church, we're ahead of the demographic curve from from the nation in those two sectors. And, um, and it has a very salutary effect. But we have to make sure that we're actually hearing from the Latino community. I think this is a, this is a real problem with, that we face on, 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 on race as well. In the civil rights movement, you know, the spokespeople for the African-American community in the 1950s and 60s were pastors who knew what was going on in their community. They were on a pedestal. If you were a black pastor, you were on a pedestal in your community, but you knew and, and again, now I think that has shifted mostly to professors who, by definition, are removed from society, who are given, their, you know, the old jokes about the ivory tower, you know, and are given the time to ponder and all that. And, and there's no obligation that Sunday morning you're in talking to your people after church. And, and so what you don't see with that, with the Latino community, is you still see these kind of first generation activists. Who, you know, I I was just uh, writing uh, uh, today about Betty Guardado, who, you know, started the Adios Arpaio campaign. She was a a door knocker as a teenager in 2010 and 2012 for Unite Here. She was a union organizer. Um, So actually, she was was not a teenager at that point. I guess she would have been in her early 20s, already a union organizer. And uh, she's now a city councilwoman in Phoenix you know, and that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so I think this is to get to your uh, question, uh, uh, Kristen, is we need to find some organizers in the pro-life uh, democratic movement who can, you know, who are charismatic, who are committed, who are not afraid to knock on doors and um, and, and not afraid to run for office someday. So, and, and, and it's, you know, at the end of the day, democracy, is a participatory thing, and and thank God that that enough people participated in 2020 <laughs> to to elect Biden. And and every night I am so grateful that I turn on the news, and it's not about the most recent presidential tweet. Oh yeah. And it, not I don't agree with everything Biden does, and I know I won't agree with many things he does, both on domestic and foreign policy. But there is a decency in this man that that the absence of for four years was really hard it was really enervating it was really you know took a toll and and uh, god bless the american people for saying basta enough of this we need uh we can't have four more years of trump
1: yeah so now speaking of president biden so this is your last question michael john uh if you could if you had a few minutes with joe biden and you could tell him what you want to see for the next three and a half years what would be your vision that he should really focus on for these next three and a half years.
2: I would go back to what we were discussing early earlier about the Pope Francis voters. Mm-hmm. You know, I like, I've started using the phrase "fratelli tutti" economics, and to go back to those quartiles, right? That this 28% that's there for the taking makes you a majority party, versus the that that 3.8%. I think we can call them the social Darwinists, mm-hmm. uh, and that's what they are. I mean, that's the, these are people who. Uh, to borrow a phrase from our English friends, do not realize that those mills really were dark and satanic. <laughs> and, uh, and that that there ha- we have to find ways of restoring solidarity. I would encourage him to make sure he's talking to real people and getting beyond the, the typical people who advise a presidential campaign. And I think he does that. I think you have, you know, I hope he talks to his Department uh, Secretary of Labor regularly because uh, Marty Walsh you know, came up through the labor movement. He's spoken openly about his, his being a member of NAA. And, you know, th- th- these are two areas of life that are very real. Where, and, and one requires you to go to a daily meeting. And so <laughs> you're always checking in with, with reality. And, you know, Marty is the kind of person you want in your foxhole. Marty is the kind of person you have in his cabinet. And he's got him there. And I hope he listens to him. I think Marty, you know, it was obviously we just I disagree on on, he's pro-choice, but he never developed an antagonistic relationship with the Catholic Church when he was the mayor of Boston and other mayors before him. Right. I mean, remember after the horrible tragedy of the Boston Marathon bombing, that that service that they held in the cathedral, which was just one of the really beautiful moments of national kind of coming to to grips and and that kind of stuff stopped in, in the Trump years. Because you, you, you need to have the president there, although that day I think actually the, the governor, Deval Patrick, gave the, the better speech than, than President Obama. Nonetheless, it was a beautiful, beautiful uh, moment. And that's the culture that Marty Walsh comes from. So there's, there are really good Democrats who I think uh, we can talk to. I think it is vital for the pro-life movement to, to be cultivating allies in, in the labor movement. The labor movement is the one part of the Democratic Party that has never taken a position on Roe. Uh, Some unions have, Uh, I think on issues like on euthanasia uh, for for the nurses unions that can be a real workers issue, which is nurses need to be trusted by their patients and it won't take long if patients realize that there's this option out there that may be coerced on them the nurse will find out about it before the doctor and and they don't want to be put in that situation and so i think there's a real opportunity for us to reach out to our our labor friends and and talk about those kinds of issues they will come at it from a different perspective uh, for instance any effort to to require a, a hotel, hospital worker to perform an abortion again for for a union that's just a workers rights issue you know and and we'll t- we'll take an ally wherever we can find him so I, I think there's a lot of work to be done. I, I think we have to expect some setbacks. I think that the, the pro-choice forces are, are well-funded and well-organized, and, and um, but at the end of the day, that 28% is there for a reason. Like that, that 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 reflects something about our, our culture that I, I think is very good, um, and I think it's 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 something that's very accessible for people. I think at the end of the day, that libertarian posture people sniff pretty quickly that it's not attractive unless you're really rich or really powerful. And um, and so we'll see. We'll see. It's, it's also really important that the pro-life movement becomes sane. I think this is a job for us, in, especially in, as Democrats for life, like this whole thing about the vaccines, like we have to call that out and say this was insanity. I just got into a, a, a discussion with um, somebody at Catholic University. They had this statement and it was signed by Catholic University professors and and I talked to someone there they have an institute for integral human ecology and I said oh I guess this is becoming the institute for integral human insanity (laughs) you you do not spend an hour talking about craziness if you want to know the ethical there are profound ethical issues raised by this vaccines namely I at age 59 got my first uh, uh, jab yesterday and there are healthcare workers in sub-Saharan Africa, who have not received it and mm-hmm. should have gotten it before me. Now, that's a profound ethical issue that this vaccine raised by this vaccine that touches on our concern for life, not you know stem cells that that have been around for 50 years and and even a rudimentary understanding of our doctrine of co- of cooperation with evil, which is there for a reason. There's a reason, you know, in a complex society you need that theology. You can't just set that aside. If, well, if you want to set that aside and go you know, uh, go, go live uh, like the Amish, you know, that that's fine. But that's not what Catholics do. Catholics are and certainly not at a university. <laughs> so uh, so we got our work cut out for us, my friends. But um, no one ever said it would be easy.
1: Yeah, I feel a lot of a lot of optimism about the pro-life movement. We do actually have people that are running for office. And we had a victory in Massachusetts just this with a special. Well, the general election is in next week. But the pro-life yeah. Democrat won the primary. So we're very That's excited great about news. that. Yep. And yeah. we have a candidate in Ohio who's running in a special who's pro-life. So I th- yeah. think this movement is back on a growth point. Um, and we're excited about the prospects going forward.
0: Great. Great. Thank you so much for joining us today, Michael Sean. It's been an absolute pleasure.
2: Always great to be with you both.
0: Our next segment is On the Ground and on the Hill, where we talk about whole-life grassroots activism, campaigning, and legislative efforts. So one thing that was excluded from the COVID relief package was an increase in the minimum wage. Do you think Congress will take this up independently at any point?
1: I do believe the House will take it up independently, and they may pass something. Again, when we go back to talking about the Senate and and the rules, governing the senate i think it will be hard to pass something over there Uh, unless there is bipartisan cooperation i think it will be very difficult but i do think there will be uh, increasing uh, dialogue and increasing push for increasing the minimum wage and it's something that will help you know many americans out of uh, many americans out of poverty so i think it's a good discussion that we should have
0: yeah. And S- Senator Manchin seemed like he's open to an increase in the minimum wage, but maybe not up to 15. Is that right?
1: Yep. I believe you're right on that. Um, so I, I think maybe, you know, an incremental raise and in, 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 in helping people lift people out of poverty is, is huge, is very important. So I I'm, I look forward to the discussion and the debate and hopefully to bring in, to, in some bipartisan cooperation to help Americans around the country. Mm-hmm.
0: It would be nice if they could maybe find middle ground on any issue, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, is there any other legislation that whole lifers should be keeping their eye on, looking forward?
1: Yes. Well, we uh, we are continuing to work in New Jersey to prevent the Reproductive Freedom Act from from passing in New Jersey, and we're having success there. So, I would encourage people, particularly if they are in New Jersey, to contact their legislators to to make sure that that does not pass. Uh, we are also, uh, paid Paid leave is an important issue that we should be discussing, and that would be something that I would like to see Congress take up. When you talk about paid leave, uh, most people think corporate America, and in corporate America, most women, or a vast majority of women, already have the paid leave. So when mm-hmm. I talk about paid leave, I talk about hourly workers who and low income women who are the ones who often feel like abortion is their only choice and if we are able to pass some paid leave across the board for hourly workers and low income workers this would make a tremendous difference in women's lives who will have the opportunity to take time off to have their babies instead of feeling like they they don't they couldn't take time off or they'll lose their jobs so i think paid leave is something that i would really like to see the congress debate and take up and there's several bills out there on both sides of the aisle so i think this is one area where maybe we could find some bipartisan cooperation and 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 help help women uh, in you know can keep their jobs and not have to have an abortion to not lose it
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, those pro-lifers, pro-life Republicans should feel a little pressure there if, if women are going back to work three days after having a baby because they're worried they can't take care of their family without it. I mean, in the richest country in human history, that simply should not be the case.
1: No, absolutely.
0: Pro-lifers need to step up on that. Am I right that registration is open for the Democrats for Life conference this summer? Is there anything you could tell us about that conference?
1: Yes, I am so excited about the conference this year. Hopefully everyone will be vaccinated. We're planning on a live event out in Los Angeles, and it is going to be one of our best. People are already buying their tickets, so we're very excited about that, and we're going to have a great lineup of speakers, and it's going to be such a wonderful opportunity for people to meet each other. And have uh, you know? And we we will have some live music there. Our our president of Democrats for Life, Teresa Bakovinak, is going to sing her whole life revolution song. And we have other people bringing their musical instruments and their voices too. They're going to sing along with her for our, our for our live music portion of the conference. So it's going to be great. So if you can if you can make it out to California, uh, you know, please try. It's July 30th and 31st. It's going to be a really fun uh, event and an opportunity to be with people who agree with you. And it's just um, wonderful to be with pro-life Democrats. I'm always so energized after spending the weekend uh, at our conferences with all these wonderful people.
0: I I think it's so encouraging for pro-life Democrats to see each other face to face, right? What we've heard so often is like, I thought I was the only one. And we're like, Mm -hmm. well, there's over 20 million of us. But sometimes it definitely doesn't feel like that, right? You feel kind of isolated if you're not meeting other people face to face.
1: Yeah, for sure. And we're making a big push to have a bunch of our really inspirational and incredible legislative leaders to come out this year. Uh, and especially our, our whole life leadership is going to be awarded this year. And I can't announce that just yet because we haven't notified the winner. But uh, just just wait. Our whole life leadership winner is incredible. And uh, it was named after Governor Bob Casey, who is an inspiration to us all with his uh, ability to just really push for a whole life ethic in, in Pennsylvania when he was governor. So we're very proud that that award was, was named after him and we've given it to Pro life for the whole life. Governor John Bella Edwards, uh, Dan Lipinski, and Katrina Jackson. So we've only given it out three times. So this this fourth time is really special, and that the the, win, the winner of this award is uh, really incredible. Cool. So stay tuned. <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I think you were alluding to it a little bit earlier. Did you want to talk about maybe upcoming efforts around the Hyde Amendment? Is there anything you can talk about at this point?
1: Yes, so the Hyde Amendment is just critical. We need to do everything we can to save the Hyde Amendment. We have a save Hyde Day of Action coming up on April 10th, so if you can, uh, print out a sign that we have on our website and take it to your congressional office and, and stand out there, take a picture, post it on social media, and say that we want to save Hyde. It's up to the Democrats to save Hyde because you know we need the Democratic votes in the House and the Senate to vote to save Hyde. And, uh, you know, especially the ones, there are about six of them who voted for Hyde in the past. Congressman Ryan from Ohio, Congresswoman Marcy Captor from Ohio, uh, Sanford Bishop from Georgia, so and, and a few others. That, but we need to target those members and target your own and urge them to protect Hyde. Uh, we're also going to have a symposium on explaining exactly what Hyde is and how we, how we save it. So we have a lot of action coming up and uh, also consider contributing to our Save, Hide campaign. Go to support.democratsforlife.org and uh, click on our DFLA initiatives and click on Save, Hide and make a contribution to help us with this effort because it's so important. Uh, Because the more money we spend on abortions, uh, the the more people are killed. And so we have to stop federal funding of abortion.
0: Right. And and if we're providing more assistance to, to young families and other things like that, and, and we are able to retain Hyde, we can really keep that abortion rate headed in the right direction.
1: Yep. Because when you look at the states that provide unlimited taxpayer funding of abortion, they have the highest abortion rates in the nation. When you look at New York, when you look at New Jersey, when you look at California, they all provide unlimited funding of abortion. And they are sending a message to women that that is the choice you should make because we'll pay for it. We need to change our priorities and make sure women know that that's not the choice that they should be making and we're going to support them for real choice.
0: Mhm. It's it's an important part of a real comprehensive approach mm-hmm, to abortion. For sure. Thank you everyone for listening to our third show, Whole Life Rising is brought to you by Democrats for Life of America and Millennial We want to thank Democrats for Life for taking the lead in fundraising for the show. If you'd like to make a contribution to ensure the long-term viability of the show, please visit the Democrats for Life homepage or our show notes. And please subscribe to the podcast and give it a good review if you'd like to hear more. Thank you.